You're listening to the Brown Girl Podcast, a new show discussing various cultural and mainstream topics that impact our community from the perspectives of South Asian women. The show also aims to highlight South Asian women creators, business owners, and pioneers who are paving the way for future generations. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever your podcasts are found. If you're on Instagram, give us a follow at thebrowngirl underscore podcast to stay up to date on new releases and stay engaged with our community. Thanks for tuning in. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for hitting that play button today. My name is Julie, and I'm the host of this podcast. This is episode number six, and today we are going to be interviewing my friend Namida Crow and talking about adoption. So the episode is titled Adoption, the Perspective You Rarely Hear, and Namida is going to be sharing her own um, lived experiences of being an adopted child. Um, I think we often hear stories and perspectives from like the parents who are going down the path of adoption and what that process is like and the journey that that entails. Um, But we, or or at least I rarely hear the perspective of the adoptee. Um, So Namida has an extremely unique story and experience with adoption, everything from the story of her birth mother and, um, you know, being adopted overseas, her upbringing in the States, and and how all those experiences have shaped her perspectives and who she is today. Um, So I'm excited to have her on the show. Thank you for joining us today, Namida. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. How are you? I am well. Um, I'm glad we were finally able to schedule this. I feel like we scheduled, <laughs> yeah. rescheduled, repeated that a couple times. I know it's been a really busy summer, um, but we're, yeah. we're here. So thank you. Yeah. Um, I wanted to just kick it off by sharing how Namida and I know each other. So we met a few years ago. I think it was like 2017 at a 4th of July barbecue. And we were both uh, living in Seattle at the time. And we met just totally clicked right away. And um, we've been really good friends since then. And I, I remember like, uh, the first time that we hung out after that, like one on one, and I just learned more about your story and about the things that you were doing, the projects you were working on abroad. And I just thought like, wow, she's really cool like I want to be friends with her um so I'm I'm really glad that we've been able to to stay in touch and I really valued our friendship um so yeah yeah so why don't we just start by having you tell us a quick intro on like who you are what you do um where you live and then um I'd also love if if you could briefly share a little bit about the Sinza campaign I know that's um, a whole nother something that we could probably, you know, cover in an entirely separate episode. But I think that's such a cool initiative that you started. And I would love for listeners to, to hear a glimpse of that. Um, and then we can dive into the topic and, and backstory of your adoption. Yeah, well, I am originally from Portland, mm-hmm. Oregon, and um, have been living between Seattle and Portland and finally looking forward to settling down in Seattle in six weeks. Okay. Um, For the last eight years or so, I've been working with small communities to innovate ways we can work together and serve the community. You know, it's all about gathering people together and saying, how can we contribute our skill sets to meet the needs of our neighbors? Mm -hmm. So post-college, I spent about three years in Uganda developing a small grassroots company called the Sinza Project. I recruited a team of volunteer animators, educators, public health professionals, and nutritionists in Uganda to work together 
and create an animated show featuring a young Ugandan girl named Sinza who could teach people about nutrition and infectious diseases and other health concerns. So recently during the pandemic, the show has actually been playing on a couple TV networks in Uganda. And we've actually mostly designed our episodes to be for school programs around the Mm -hmm. education curriculum. Now I've handed off the leadership to a team in Uganda, which are really, really awesome. I love them and I'm so proud of them. Uh, And then personally, I'm transitioning and my career to switching into talent acquisition for tech. Cool. That's that's amazing. Um, You are somebody who I feel like has lived so many lives. So I'm sure (laughs) that I will bring you back on the podcast in the future to talk about some of the the work you've done in in those other capacities. Um, Really cool. So let's let's dive into the meat of this episode. So tell us your story of of adoption from from the very beginning. Yeah, um, I was adopted when I was 10 years old with my younger sister. We grew up in India with my family till I was about eight, um, outside of Bangalore in a little town called Dudbalapur. Um, and, and then I spent about a year and a half um, in the orphanage, which was in Bangalore. The orphanage was actually pretty awesome. I grew up in a good orphanage for the stories that we hear about orphanages. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were pretty well cared for. And then um, a, a single woman in Portland adopted my younger sister and I together, uh, which I'm really grateful for because I don't know. I, I can't imagine my life without my sister if I'd lost her too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a hard time bonding to my mother here. Um uh, since I was 10 years old and you had a, sorry, can I pause you there? You had a hard time bonding with your adopted mother. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I had a hard time uh, bonding with my adoptive mother. I was pretty angry and depressed as a teenager. Uh, when I was 16, that did start to change. Um, and then when I turned 18, I started looking for my birth family. So I was Googling, um, the map of Dodbalapur and trying to figure out where the railway station was and calling up asking if they knew who my uncle was because I knew my grandmother's house was across the street from the railway station Mm -hmm. or asking people who I knew were going to Bangalore whether they could go look for my family um, or anything like that and I knew I was so determined I'd been dreaming about it since I was a kid that I would go back one day because I knew I could take the bus from Bangalore to Dodabalapur and across the railway station would be my grandmother's house. Um, but I, about a year after, when I was about 19 years old, my amma, which is the word for mother in my language, my native language, um, my birth mother, found us on Facebook and made contact. Um, so in 2010, my adoptive mother took both my sister and I to India for the summer. And actually, my adoptive mother, when we were first adopted, when I was 10 and my sister was 8, we told her that our family was alive and well in India and that we really wanted to be with them. And so she told us when we were adults, she would take us back. Mm-hmm. And so she fulfilled her promise to us. And um, we went and we visited. It was a really complicated situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had planned a trip for about two months and came back within a month. 
and we oh. cut off um, after after that we cut off contact with my amma and then for the next like five years I actually just sent her an email every month just checking in on her hey how are you um, it wasn't until 2015 in Uganda that I first made the official reconnection to her Mm-hmm. I was living abroad, um, and there were a lot of nonprofit leaders that I was starting to meet from the UK who were working to change the adoption scene. Mm-hmm. I remember meeting a woman named Lucy. We were sitting at a cafe together. She was telling me that she didn't think that international adoption should be happening anymore, that there were families in Uganda who wanted to keep their children, and if they could, um, it was the healthiest choice for the kids. Mm-hmm. I remember looking at her and saying, I've actually never been able to say this out loud before, but I don't like being adopted. It's mm-hmm. painful, and I don't think it's right. And it ended up being a pretty meaningful moment for Lucy, too, because she'd come to Uganda to start an orphanage, and when she discovered how complicated, unjust, and corrupt it was a majority of the time in Uganda and painful for the children, she started an organization that helped facilitate empowering the families and reconnecting the extended families for children who truly were orphaned, which was a very minor amount of children. Her main objective was to displace the orphanage system, which in itself is just a weird concept. I mean, we're segregating children from communities and putting them into a confined space. Mm-hmm. And I think we've all heard the stories of abuses and neglect that can happen in orphanages. Sure. At that moment, um, Lucy was meeting a real-life adult adoptee for the first time who was saying, yeah, that makes sense because you're right, it was painful and I'm sad and it shouldn't have happened and I'm not allowed to say that. I grew up with typical narratives um, of for being grateful for being saved to America, Mm -hmm. that um, I wouldn't be a Christian if I wasn't adopted. Um, these were things that I heard in my church environment. I remember when I was 15, um, I felt very bad as a teenager growing up for being sad and missing my country and my family. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was 15, I remember an elder of my church came coming up to me. I must have mentioned that I was missing India or my family or something. And he said, well, you're an American now. You're a crow now. And now I look back at these memories and I laugh because I think, wait, which I really value my faith in Jesus beyond just the religion of Christianity. And I laugh and say, wait, is Jesus only existing in America? Does he not exist in India? You know, I could have. I could have become a Christian in India. Mm-hmm. So these like little things that we say, it's really harmful because it takes away from the grieving process of real loss. So back to Lucy, I started talking to her and other leaders in Uganda that were doing all this work to fight legislation and fighting policies to protect families in Uganda and to protect the children who were literally being hunted and vulnerable families were being taken advantage of. Mm -hmm. Why? Because the international adoption industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of this information is becoming very public now, but as I found out more about the reality behind adoption in Uganda, I was talking to another leader in the UK, from the UK named Karen, who runs an organization in Uganda that helps reunite children in orphanages back to their families of origin. 
Mm-hmm. So many times because of the lack of tools and help available to families, children disappear and they're not able to be reconnected with the families um, who really actually do want them. So right. talking about the darker side of adoption, Karen told me that there are people who lie to the parents, promising them that they would get to the West just for education or health care, and mm-hmm. then misleading families to believe that their children would si- find some sort of temporary help. If you've had any interaction with communities in developing countries, you know that there is a perspective that going to America for education is the ultimate goal. It's the hope of the family and the nation, which is all a part of the reality of the global wealth disparity. It can be straight out lying and trafficking of children. And then in the lighter side, it's just harmful miscommunication. A lot of these families don't understand English fully or various cultural practices don't understand what relinquishment means. I remember mm-hmm. Karen telling me that in Ugandan culture and worldview, family relationship is blood relationship. Mm-hmm. So not legal. So there's no understanding of the concept of a legal separation of their child. The child is their blood and always belongs to them. So how do you, how do you make sense to them? that they're legally being separated forever and losing touch. It just doesn't come across. So learning all this, I was remembering, starting to remember my own Amma and her story. When she dropped me off at the orphanage, she knelt down and told me, you're going to go to America for a bit and you're going to get a good education. Here is Amma's address. That's my grandmother. Mm-hmm. Um, here's her address in Dodabalapur. I still have it written on a sticky note to this day um, that I hold on to it. Mm-hmm. In 2010, when we visited her, she kept saying that she had not understood what relinquishment meant. And at the time, I was young. I didn't get what she meant by that. But um, my amma had been taken out of schooling after the eighth standard and married off when she was 16, and she didn't speak English all that well. Mm-hmm. She signed papers that she didn't understand. Mm-hmm. My appa, which is my father, beat her constantly, sometimes so badly she was bruised all over. Um, I remember going to the police station with her uh, ripped sari from all the kicking that she'd had to endure as mm-hmm. he beat her. I remember one time he was so angry, he threatened to set her on fire, mm-hmm. um, which I only recently found out about. In the fight, he ended up he ended up being the one set on fire. Mm-hmm. He was burned so badly. He was in the hospital for like weeks. I was very attached to my dad and I was very close to him. So I visited him at the hospital and missed him a lot. Um, it was only last year, actually, that my birth mother told me um, that he had been trying to kill her. Um, I was told when I was a kid that he'd accidentally bumped into a lamp and it had spilled over. I was actually sleeping on a mat when the fire uh got caught and um, I would have died except for a neighbor came in and picked me up and took me out. Mm -hmm. So after like so many of these really, really crazy incidents, when I was eight, my mother decided, my amma decided that she was going to leave the family and go to Bangalore and get some help. Mm -hmm. And at the time, I think I knew I was understanding, of course, she was escaping, like he was treating her badly. But I also really loved my dad and wanted to stay with him. So I chose to stay at my mama's house, which was near my dad. And actually, after everybody went to sleep every night at the house, you know, it's India. So we have like 36 relatives all living in the same house. 
Sure. And I would sneak away each night to go sleep next to my dad at his house. Um, and then a few months later, after this, my amma came back and took us to Bangalore where she put us in the orphanage. Life for a single woman in India is really, really difficult. It is everywhere, but there's just in the culture of India, there's a lot of shame mm -hmm. from society and not much opportunity. And this is 20, 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. So my amma had hoped to find a foothold for herself and then needed some temporary care for us until she could provide for us herself. So when I call her in 2015, after talking to all these different nonprofit leaders in Uganda, I um, had a neighbor in Uganda who spoke Tamil, which is a language that my Amma speaks. And I called her for the first time in five years after our reconnection and asked her, can you tell me the story of you dropping me off at the orphanage? Mm -hmm. And she did. And she tells me this story of how she had meant for the orphanage situation, situation to only be temporary. Mm -hmm. And if we were to go to America for it to just be for a good education, because mm -hmm. she had not had that opportunity for herself. Mm -hmm. And she, as we know, with Indian families, they think education is salvation. Mm -hmm. And um, she, at the, in the meantime, was trying to look for a good job so that she could support my sister and me. Mm -hmm. And at this time, I remembered this day, and I had always wondered what this day was all about. So there was the spot where the building where we slept, and then there was another building in the compound at the orphanage where we did school. And I had been standing next to my teacher getting my spelling checked, and out the back window, I see my birth mother, my amma, walking um, outside the gate and immediately I went into like screaming like I want to see my amma I want to see my amma so eventually after a few minutes somebody from the office comes in and takes me and they take me to the office where my amma is sitting on a chair and I am I fall to her feet and I say amma take me back home I miss home I miss dad mm -hmm. I want to go back home and she just does not make eye contact with me. She looks away from me. She's crying. And she hits me with her umbrella. And then somebody just grabs me and takes me away. And the rest of the day, I was in tantrums. Mm -hmm. um, and I always thought, that was really weird. What happened? Well, it was in 2015, asking my amma, just tell me the story of you dropping us off. She tells me that was the day she'd come back because she found out that we were being adopted to America, never to have contact with her. And she came back and said, no, that's not what I wanted. Mm -hmm. And the people at the orphanage said to her, we're so sorry, but you already signed the paperwork and the adoption mm -hmm. process is already through. There's a family waiting for them. So we can't do anything about it. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's kind of my Amma's story. And I just... I, I'm really sad. I'm really mm -hmm. sad looking at my Amma's story. I've visited her a few times now in India, and it's heartbreaking mm -hmm. because she, she, you know, she literally has baby posters around her little living room because 
that's where she left off. She lost her babies and her life has not moved on mm -hmm. from that point. And she looked for us for 10 years, which mm -hmm. is how she ended up finding us on Facebook was because she finally waited till we were, till my sister had turned 18 years old. It was mm -hmm. within weeks of my sister turning 18, she made contact with us um, so that we could finally be back in her life. And the reality is that I'm American now and mm -hmm. I have a different culture and I can't always engage with her. I don't, I can't even speak to her in the same language. So it's been really complicated and difficult and it's mm -hmm. not a romantic story of reunion. Sure. Um, but yeah, so this is the, this is the reality of adoption. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, there's um, so much to, uh, to unpack here, I guess to start you know, when you reconnected with your birth mother in, in 2015, that's when you um, first learned that, you know, she didn't understand what relinquishment meant. Um, so she was not of the understanding that she was essentially terminating her parental rights entirely by signing this paperwork, correct? Like yeah. there was some, some level of either intentional or unintentional, you know, manipulation or, or misunderstanding that was taking place. Um, a lot of different factors, you know, limited knowledge, language barriers, et cetera, um, poor intentions as well, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, and, and I think like, you know, when you, when you shared the memory where you were in the classroom in India and your, and your birth mother comes back to the orphanage to get you and, and your sister and gets denied, I mean, you're eight years old, right? You're, yeah. you're eight years old at the time. You're old enough to have um, consciousness and awareness of what's happening around you. When you, you start crying for your mom and kicking and screaming because you want to be with your mom and you know, despite the very evident, like mutual desire from like both your birth mother and you and you as a child in, in being reunited, you're still being denied that right from from the orphanage, right? And I think that just really sheds light on how gravely, um, like wrong and unjust this whole like process can be right, like, and, and in preparing for um this podcast episode, like just watching documentaries and like researching, like I was so taken aback learning how there is that side of adoption that is very like um, profit driven and flawed and, you know, different parties involved are um, exploited for what they have to bring to the table. You know what I mean? Especially when there's like cash strapped orphanages and institutions involved and like money coming in from, um, overseas families who who want to adopt and all these other factors, it, it ends up leading to the to the child being treated like a commodity. Um, and so like, I guess, what is your what is your mission and, and messaging that you want to create on adoption as a whole? Like, how would you summarize what it is that you want people to understand about adoption? <sighs> yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> a big question. Um, adoption, you know, has a lot of beautiful elements to it, mm -hmm. but it also has a lot of painful elements. Mm -hmm. Adoption can also be really corrupt. Sure. Just like anything, hearing people's stories, family stories, validating their experience, mm -hmm. listening to what they actually need is the mm -hmm. right answer every time. Mm -hmm. um, adoption can be a cause, a reason to fight for or against something. 
I know people who advocate for adoption. I know people who fight against adoption. I know adoptees who are pro-adoption and adoptees who are against adoption. I know adoptive families who are absolutely incredibly sacrificial and create loving homes for their kids. Mm -hmm. And I know some families who've been absolutely selfish and evil. Mm -hmm. So I think I just want to, I just want us to embrace the complexity and it's, it's hard because I want to give a solution. I want to say, here I am saying it's painful and it's hard and here's the solution. Here's the right way to do it. Mm-hmm. But it's not as easy as that. And I just want us to think more deeply and see the whole community involved with adoption. We see the parents, the adoptive mm-hmm. parents. We see the kids. They usually have voices. More and more adoptive voices are coming out and speaking up. Mm-hmm. But I wonder about the voices and the stories of the birth families who've had to make difficult decisions mm-hmm. around abandoning their kids or mm-hmm. whose kids have been taken from them without their knowing why or understanding why. Mm-hmm. I want us to understand those stories too mm-hmm. and just remember those and not just so that we can grieve with the kids that we adopt, mm-hmm. but that we can also consider what kind of solutions can we come up with that are going to serve them so that they don't have to separate. I have never been a mom, but I honestly can't imagine losing my kid. Sure. And, um, you know, in Uganda, so one of the organizations that I know of, there was a story. These two birth mothers, they are actually both sisters, And they couldn't find work in the region where they were. So they traveled up country to another location and they left their two children with their other sister. And they came back uh, a year later. It's Uganda, different poverty situations. So they couldn't afford to come very often. They come back a year later and find that the children have been placed into boarding school by their sister because somebody came up and said, oh, I'd love to take your kids, give them free boarding school. And the sister gladly agreed. Well, come to find out another year later, because they haven't seen their kids, heard from them, they go into Kampala to go visit their kids and find them, and they can't find them. Come to find out that those kids have been adopted out. They do they do some research and history um, with the government because there's records of adoptions, mm-hmm. and they actually go to this organization and find out that they have been adopted, um, and to actually. Um, Uh, into Washington State, Um, Al Jazeera did a story on this recently. And they said, we didn't give those kids up for adoption. And this guy lied to Mm -hmm. my uh, sister. So anyway, the adoptive parents won't reconnect. They won't make that decision. And these kids are growing up in Washington. And Mm -hmm. the birth parents can't do anything about it. The Mm -hmm. adoption is legal on the side of the U.S. Mm-hmm. And actually now, this is a couple of years, it's been a couple of years, those, uh, that story or that case has been, uh, by the court of Uganda, it's been established as an illegal, illegal activity mm-hmm. because of what was happening. And Uganda's coming up with all kinds of different laws to help protect. Mm-hmm. But anyway, all that to say, I just want us to consider those families. Mm-hmm. Like they don't deserve to have kids taken away or not have the choice. You know, what is choice mm-hmm. when you're in those situations? Uh, like my Amma escaping the situation that she was in. 
Can mm-hmm. we come up with better solutions if we're going to go build orphanages or if we're going to go raise thousands of dollars to adopt? Why not look at how we can actually help people preserve dignity as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, like you mentioned, there's there's a good side, there's a bad side. And I think for most of us listening, we've known adoption to be something that is framed as being very compassionate and, and a positive thing. and But we rarely hear those the painful and and traumatic elements that it can it can also entail for all of the parties involved um kind of like going back to your story you know um you mentioned that like you had your initial encounter um with your birth mother in 2010 and um but something led to cutting off like what was it that led to cutting off contact with your birth mother Um, after that initial 2010 encounter? Like, was it because your adopted mother was struggling with that developing relationship? Yeah, yeah, it was complex. There were a lot of different factors. But yes, it was feeling the friction of me who hasn't bonded to my adoptive mother and her feeling jealous because Mm -hmm. here I'm reconnecting to my birth mother, even though she wanted that for us. Mm -hmm. I think the reality of it when she saw and especially seeing how much my birth mother wanted us Mm -hmm. and all of that just caused a lot of friction in that relationship. Mm -hmm. And then there was also a complexity of um, my birth mother who, again, is telling us she didn't understand relinquishment. She wants us back. Mm-hmm. And we're just in shock. It's a lot of things to take in. We don't know the language. We can't understand her. There's so mm-hmm. much miscommunication. There's drama. Mm-hmm. And then it got scary. You know, honestly, my adoptive mother was very protective about us because um, we just didn't understand what the family wanted from us or anything like that. So it got a little bit scary. And now, you know, years later, I'm looking at it and going, gosh, they just wanted relationship. Mm-hmm. My amma just wanted relationship. But at the time for us, we didn't understand all of the complexity of what was going on. Um, so I think the easiest thing for our family to do was just disconnect, not knowing how to handle that reunion. Right. And prior to the reunion, though, what was your relationship like with your adopted mother? Can you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, I know you mentioned you had a hard time bonding, but like if you could kind of pinpoint like what exactly made it, you know, was making it that difficult or add some color to what was making it so difficult to bond with your adopted mother. Um, And I also want to point out you were you were eight years old, right? Yeah. You were adopted. So you were 10. Yeah. 10 when you were adopted. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you know, my, I, I want to say my mom, my mom, my adoptive mother was so loving in so many ways. Um, she, <laughs> just some fun stories when we were adopted, first adopted. First of all, she was the kind of mom that dressed in chudidars and saris and took us to India Christian Fellowship because she wanted us to be very deeply rooted in the Indian community. Mm-hmm. And almost embarrassing because she would make heart-shaped puris for February ICF. And I'm just like, oh, my mom is wearing a chunidar and making heart-shaped puris. This is so embarrassing. And anytime she saw Indian people, she would want to introduce us. Mm-hmm. She was so funny. Um, she really cared. And when, you know, when we came, we remembered a few of our relatives' names. Um, and so she did a she made a family tree of our birth family and wrote down names and um she 
told us she'd take us back. So that's why I have the address of my mama is mm-hmm. because she had me write it down and said, when you guys are adults, I'll take you back. Mm-hmm. So my adoptive mother was so loving. Mm-hmm. And honestly, she so she passed away two years ago. Um, mm-hmm. And it's been a life changing loss. Um, and I've been able to comprehend a lot. You know, they say that there's a point when adopt when the parents adopt a kid and then there's a point when the kids adopt the parents my mom adopted us when um i was 10 and then i adopted my mother when i was 29 Mm -hmm. um it took me that 19 years of going through and wrestling to come to a place of truly loving my mom for who she was Mm -hmm. and not projecting all the anger that i had for being taken away from india onto her Mm -hmm. and also my mom though she loved us she loved us to the best of her capacity but she was a single woman in her 40s and she wanted kids and when she saw that I wasn't willing to quickly bond, there was a lot of pain for her. Mm -hmm. And all of my pain made me push her away and reject bonding with her. And that caused her some friction and anger. And I look back now and I see it and I'm sad about it and I understand it. And of course I couldn't help it. Um, I was dealing with my own stuff and I was a kid. but she she didn't have the emotional capacity to understand to how she needed to show up for me and get me the right help mm-hmm. in order to overcome those traumatic um, you know things. And I had I have an abuse history and everything, and she didn't know how to help cater for that. Mm-hmm. And she was very strict and rule based, and so I think it was a very controlling environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and for kids with trauma who have been very out of control, controlling environment just is another level. And I remember being mad because she wanted us to call her mom and I didn't want to, I wasn't ready to call her mom at 10. Mm-hmm. And so I felt like controlled in that way and forced. Um, so there were all these like complexities that now as an adult, I look back and I see the pain of the child, the teenage Namita, mm-hmm. who's feeling out of control and not understood, and a mom who loved but also had her own expectations and they mm-hmm. were disappointed, mm-hmm. and that caused pain, but also who didn't have the emotional capacity to handle what was coming with um, her decision. Right. Um, and I think this is 20 years ago where that was just not a publicly understood part of our society was emotional capacity and trauma and all of mm-hmm. that stuff. And then um, looking back now, I see a mom who through all of that deeply, deeply loved me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm really, really thankful for that. Yeah. So it sounds like, you know, there's some element of her, like perhaps your, your adopted mother not having you know, been prepared to handle like an adopted or raising an adopted child who's experienced neglect and and abuse in a prior life. Yep. Um, Do you feel like um, there are steps that the adoption system can do to better prepare parents who are adopting? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I know that there are so many people out there trying to do this better um, in a healthier way. And there are many, many tools out there. Um, 
There's even podcasts from adoptees themselves sharing about their experience so you can better anticipate maybe what your kid is going to go through. Um, But also adoption agencies are talking more about attachment disorders and um, trauma bonding and all of that sort of stuff. Um, I think the biggest thing, the biggest first step that I would encourage any parent to do is the emotional health work in themselves. Because this isn't about you. I know that we want families and we want to do good for the world because it makes us feel significant. But just like raising our own biological children, this isn't about us. It's about the kids. And do the logistical work of researching where these kids are coming from, being aware of the reality of adoption and that there are kids who need lots of help out there. But there are also ways we can help them while helping their whole family. Um, think about and consider what's happening. Um, I know adoptive parents in Uganda and China who've hired someone to research the background of the children that they're uh, being given the option to adopt. And when they find out that the children actually have parents or kin that really do want them if they were enabled to be able to take care of them, they reconnected them back to their parents or their families and then even could continue to support the whole family. So um, there's the emotional work in ourselves. And then, of course, being prepared to know and anticipate and not just a head knowledge, honestly. And it's when you do the emotional work of saying this isn't about me, it's about them and approaching it from compassion and empathy towards the kid. Do the work of learning what is it they're going to go through. I know adoptive parents who have such patience and and compassion to see their kids have crazy out of control behavior because they're struggling and wrestling with the pain in themselves and just staying and being with them loving them through that um trying different techniques and of course there are therapists out there that can help you with that and being open to that get the kid connected to a therapist i wish my mom had done that and she didn't we didn't know how to back then right those are all the things. I think there's a lot of tools, but there's also a lot of tools out there now for preventing the adoption trauma in the first place. Yeah. I mean, the reality is like adoption has a, a lifelong impact on, on those who are involved. So yeah, um, actually um, suicide rates among adoptees, dem- the demographic of adoptees is the highest out of any demographic. Oh, wow. You know, obviously you've experienced a lot of like um, trauma and neglect from from your life. What has been your um, personal healing process been like for you? Like, how have you kind of managed to, to work through the impact of all of this today? <laughs> yeah, I've been thinking a lot about this. This has been a huge year of uh, emotional maturity and growth. Yeah. Um, it's been a long road, honestly. I was thinking about it the other day. I see now the the fruit of desires for freedom I had back 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. So things, prayers that I had 15 years ago um, to be free from insecurities that controlled me for so, so long, that disrupted relationships and friendships mm-hmm. for, uh, from the out-of-control emotions Um And of course, we're always growing. So I haven't arrived, but I'm experiencing so much more freedom 
and peace than I ever have. And I honestly believe, uh, without a doubt, that the foundation for healing has been an affection for God. Um, from the beginning, I've wanted to know him and be like him. So even in the emotional immaturity and the turmoil and the chaos, I've been able to grow because I wanted him more than anything in moments of wanting to give up doubting. There's been times where for two years, I wasn't even sure who God was and what he looked like or being depressed. I always ended the day wanting him. And I know that that's been a big part of what has helped me keep going. Um, I've done a ton of therapy. <laughs> I've read books that point the way back to emotional health. Uh, Dr. Henry Cloud is amazing. Um, EMDR is a therapy where um, I, I actually, that has brought several seasons of deep, deep healing. It's where you actually access your memories of trauma and you walk through them and process them verbally. Um and those have been super tough. I remember sometimes getting in my car after a session and screaming in pain from understanding as an, as an adult what I had felt as a child. Um, so just being able to face that stuff, it's painful and it's hard, but you face it and you grieve it and you go through it. And then, of course, I think a, the biggest part of my healing process has been the community. I've grown up with some leaders and friendships who've been controlling and hurtful, um, as I've alluded to a little bit, but I also have just as many or more amazing leaders and friendships who've shown me compassion, who've called me out by saying, I want to be close to you as a friend, but it's like there's a wall. How, how tender is that? Who've like called me out on harsh behavior where I was hurting other people. I have friends that when I've emotionally disconnected because I couldn't handle intimacy and I caused them rejection or pain, they've looked me in the eye and said, I unconditionally love you, Namita. And I'm like, oh, no, can't handle that and run away. But we have such deep friendships and rich friendships and it's the faithfulness of those people in my life, that sort of community that has also brought so much healing. Yeah, that's that's amazing. I love I love what you said. The foundation of healing has been an affection for God. Um, and, you know, it sounds like you've really taken an active role um, in, in facing that pain head on and and taking, you know, your own responsibility to to heal yourself. Um, and that's really amazing to hear. Like, I think your story is so powerful. It's um, it's so inspiring to, to hear you share your story and to kind of see you evolve and see where you're at today. So, yeah. 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 Thank you. It, it is wonderful. Yeah. Honestly. Um, well, so I know we're almost out of time. Um, and again, thank you so much for, for coming on today. You know, I really enjoyed having you on. I know that this episode will really be enlightening and and share a, a new perspective that so many people are in the dark about. Um, but before we um, before we log off, I just wanted to to just wrap up with something light and fun. So um, tell us, Namida, like what is what is a show that you're binging right now? Like what is your current <laughs> guilty pleasure um, on Netflix or Hulu or whatever is out there? <laughs> well, um, it, it's 
actually, my roommates and I have a tradition of waking up at eight in the morning after an episode of some of the Marvel series are released and watching them together or uh, some of the Star Wars series. So that's been really fun for the last season. Okay, Marvel and Star Wars. Okay. <laughs> yep. And then tell us, um, tell us like, a, like a hobby of yours or something that you really like love doing. Okay, I know it's gonna sound weird. But I find absolute delight in skipping rocks. And oh. it's like wherever I go, if I see a creek with smooth stones around or an ocean, that's that was my most recent I skipped a rock in an ocean in the Pacific Ocean. Okay. It absolutely brings me delight to see that rock skip across and jump. It's, it's, yeah, I love it. I'm obsessed. <laughs> That's funny. Um, rock, rock skipping is hard. It like takes actual skill, right? Like there's like a certain technique around how to grip it and the force you apply and the direction and, and all of that. So. Exactly. You already know the physics of it. Yep. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thank you again, Namida, for, for coming on the show. It was a pleasure having you on. Thank, um, you, thank Julie. you so much for sharing, you know, this vulnerable part of your life and your, and your story. Yeah. Thank you for having me. <laughs>